Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... COVID-19 might make all the headlines, but another crisis is afoot, loneliness. Pandemic times have only exacerbated chronic loneliness by creating a world of isolation and social distancing. Can eco-villages, a unique approach to fostering community and connection, be one answer? Eco-village co-housing communities have been popular in Europe for decades, but interest here in the United States is ramping up. These communities are designed to integrate sustainability into all aspects of community living and to create strong bonds between neighbors who all collaborate in the decision-making for the group. Residents of three local communities share their communal experiences and why, post-pandemic, there is even more interest in this model of living. Later in the show, nearly one-third of all food is wasted worldwide. One company hopes to get consumers to change that. The Too Good To Go app connects customers with local shops who have good food that would have otherwise been thrown away. The European-based service has launched in Boston. But first, joining me remotely, Dave Chevette, resident and one of the founders of Mosaic Commons, a co-housing neighborhood part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Callie. Thanks. Sarah Hiley, resident of Camelot Co-Housing, also part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Hi, Sarah. How you doing? I'm great. And also with me, Steve Chasen, resident of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco Village in Belfast, Maine. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have all of you because this is really very interesting. I don't know where I've been. I sort of missed this whole movement, <laughs> but I'm I'm delighted to introduce it to all of my listeners. And I want to start with you, Dave, because 22 years, one of the founders of uh, Mosaic Commons, which is a part of Soria Hill Eco Village. So you were already living, I'm told, in a communal house, but this concept was expanded from that and it interested you. Why? There were a couple of reasons. We were living in a communal house, kind of like a, almost like a big uh, college frat house, if you want to look at that type of model. But those type of living situations, they don't really scale well into kind of adulthood and professional settings. So we really wanted to have a much larger community that involved different types of people, different age groups, different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, and really, you can't do that under one roof. So the concept of co-housing and eco-villages definitely was a model that we could see allowing us to expand the concept of communal living and shared resources in a way that would make everybody comfortable. So you could have set up a community like this with no eco as part of it, but eco is really very much part of the building of these communities. So explain that. 
Sure. When a co-housing community starts to form, usually one of the early discussions is what are your values? What's important to you? What do you really want to accomplish? The people that formed Mosaic Commons, very early in the conversation, we decided that we wanted to build a community that was as uh, environmentally friendly, as eco-friendly as possible. So we chose things like super insulated houses, orienting all the buildings so they could take solar power very easily, things like that. It was a key component and one of the, the baseline planks of our platform, if you want to look at it like that, and all the decisions that we made as we designed the community eventually moved into it. Okay. That is my guest, Dave Chavette. He's a resident and one of the founders of Mosaic Commons, which is a part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Over to you, Sarah Hiley. So you knew people who were a part of this community and became intrigued. How did that happen? Correct. One of my best friends and I uh, worked together and about five years into our friendship was when things really got rolling. So uh, Camelot, as, a, as an organization community is slightly younger than Mosaic. And my understanding is at some point there were cross connections between people in both groups. And they collectively decided that it would be easier to sort of buy a parcel of land together and take some advantages there, but still make some individual decisions for the two communities. So I always refer to it as intentional community. The idea that you want to know your neighbors. Um, I lived in a condo complex in Hudson before I moved to Berlin. And I knew like three of my neighbors out of 27. Just wasn't a place where you intentionally reached out to people. People weren't unfriendly, but they weren't really friendly. Uh, so that was probably the piece that appealed to me the most was that I wanted to have my own space, like not a communal house kind of situation, but that there were people who I could walk next door and say, hey, you want to have a cup of tea today or watch a movie, do something outside, hang out around the fire pit. You know, that really appealed to me. Uh, and I was lucky enough finally a couple of years ago to be able to make that in a reality. I only moved in three years ago this summer. I want to just pick up something so people understand the difference. I live in a condo association, and I could probably go next door and say the same thing with my neighbor. But there's something else happening in Camelot housing, co-housing with you. So just explain that just a little bit more about why it's a little bit different. Absolutely. So legally, both communities are condos. We are we are Massachusetts registered condos. We you know we're an HOA. We have the same bylaws and all that stuff. I pay HOA fees. The difference is how we govern, which is by consensus. We have monthly meetings. If we don't have quorum, we can't change things. For example, all our houses are oriented. Uh, the front doors are all oriented towards each other. The parking is off to the side. You cannot just drive up to your front door. Uh, so you literally face your neighbors in both communities, Mosaic and Camelot, and my understanding most co-housing, we have a common house. Um, in our case, we have a commercial kitchen uh, and we often do common meals together and an email list where if you say, oh, I need a cup of milk because I ran out, like within 15 minutes, someone's probably like, oh, run over to my place. I've got whatever you need. You go in knowing that you will need to interact more with your neighbors because of the way you govern, because of the way the buildings are literally oriented so that you face your neighbors. 
I just want to remind people that HOA is Homeowners Association, in case you're thinking, what is that? <laughs> All right. Now, Steve Chasen, you're a resident of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco Village in Belfast, Maine. And I have to say, you're, you're really the one that I, I thought to myself, this is so interesting, because you and your wife were living in a very isolated situation before, and you loved it. But this then appealed to you, this different model of living. Why? Well, I guess you could say we saw the handwriting on the wall. To fill in a little of the backstory, we lived on an 18-acre parcel of land where our nearest neighbor was half a mile away and the nearest town was 10 miles away. And we were approaching retirement age and could see that lifestyle was really a, a very energy-intensive lifestyle, much more suited to the people we were when we actually went there and, and raised our family. Uh, so we knew that we would have to do something different in our elder years, and we decided we'd rather be proactive about it than have something forced upon us. You could have gone to a condo association or uh, some other kind of neighborhood, but this particular kind of living appealed to you. So you're really going from very independent and solitary to intentional community, facing houses facing inward, as as uh, Sarah has described. That's a big change. It, it was a huge change. And to be honest with you, my wife and I weren't completely in agreement about the wisdom of taking that step. <laughs> it's been <laughs> a struggle for me to make that adjustment. But uh, because we came in early on, something that sort of enticed me was the idea that I could help give shape to the way things unfolded over time. And that has proven to be the case. I wouldn't characterize myself as a, as a particularly gregarious person, but I am a person who, when they engage a project, engages fully. So I'm all in. And what's been really interesting for me over the time that we've been here is to notice how I have changed as a human being and how uh, things that, that I once prioritized have shifted in response to living in this environment, both in terms of my thinking about community and my relationships with the individuals around me, and in thinking about the state of the world and how things look going forward from here and how this particular model really can make a difference most especially to the people who choose it, but in a larger sense, to the to the communities around them and to the world at large. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Dave Chevette of Mosaic Commons, Sarah Hiley of Camelot Co-Housing, and Steve Chasen of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco Village. We're discussing Eco Village life. Now, I want to go back to you, Dave, because there are two halves underneath Sawyer Hill Eco Village, and that is uh, on your end, Mosaic Commons, and on Sarah's end, Camelot. I don't want to get all wonked down in all the details of it, but the bottom line was there were uh, two different communities looking to do the same thing and came together because it was made more efficient to find one big piece of land for all that the two communities wanted to have happen. You take it from there. Sure, that it's actually a, kind of a fascinating story. Uh, in the mid 2000s, both Camelot Co-housing and Mosaic Commons Co-housing were in the land search phase of community building. 
at this point when you're building a co-housing community, you've gotten a core group of families and people who have bought in sometimes literally into the project. And we're like, okay, we know what the community is going to look like. We know what our values are. We're making decisions. We're spending money properly. The next step is we need to find a place. We need to know where we're going to be. A ton of decisions have already been made in the process by the time you go into land search. Fortunately, we ended up working with a consultant that realized when he found a piece of land for Camelot, he called me up and said, hey, look, we have this 62 acre parcel of land available. We had this crazy idea that we could put both communities on it. Now, Camelot is 34 households, plus their common house, plus a barn. And Mosaic is also 34 households, plus a common house, plus one or two outbuildings. So we're like, can we fit 68 houses on this piece of land? And our engineers were like, heck yes, we could do that. We've never done that before. This sounds really cool. After a lot of paperwork and wrangling and conversations, Camelot and Mosaic purchased the land together and we designed the entire community on it. Now, with our baseline ideas of land conservation and working with the politics of the state and with the town, the end result was 62 acres of land-ish, but only about seven acres was actually disturbed by building our households. This is really uncommon in modern building techniques. So we're, very, we're quite proud of that. So we have these wonderful open woods and fields around our property. Our communities are quite dense, which is the way we like it. Uh, Sarah, I would like you, and then I'm going to ask you also, Steve, to talk about just how your fabulous your houses are. I mean, I was actually just really <laughs> getting all excited reading about how well insulated they are, for example. So tell us about actually the living space and why it's sustainable and what you love about it. So we have a number of different size units because, of course, people came in with different needs, different family sizes. So we have one, two, and three bedroom units. And some of them have basements, some of them don't, like mine doesn't. I'm on a slab because there was a granite ledge that no one wanted to pay to blast out, which I think is very reasonable. So, so there are some compromises on some things like all the initial uh, furnaces and hot water heaters are all in the attics, which are part of the conditioned space. But we have, you know, the really fantastic, uh, high quality, you know, Anderson windows. I don't know exactly what makes them special, but like, you know, they've got the UV treatment. Um, I've never felt a leak off these windows, which is a lot more than I can say for any other place I've lived in the metro Boston area. Mm. One of the things that once again speaks to the eco nature of it and is different than your typical condo situation is I did not have to get permission to put solar panels on my unit last year. That's one of the things that's just assumed that when and if you were able to put solar panels on, you can just do that. You need to tell your neighbors that like it's happening so they know when trucks might be on site. But in my old place, uh, I couldn't have done that at all because of course, you know, the exterior is held in common. But because the eco part is such an important piece, like solar panels are just sort of considered something you can just do without asking permission which is very, very cool. Uh, and in terms of insulation, yeah, there's a lot in there. In fact, my upper floor is often a little warmer than I would like because I can't like get enough heat out <laughs> in the winter. Wow. Uh, 
You're killing us. Go ahead. I know. I know. <laughs> I, you know, I have a, a decent amount of square footage and my understanding compared to some of friends who are in older buildings and whatnot is I pay less in, in cost to, to heat sort of for comparable square footages. Mm -hmm. And Steve, what I'm fascinated by is, as Sarah has explained, there's a lot of variety in the houses, even though you're under the, the umbrella of uh, eco-living. So you live in an electric house? Yes. Um, all the homes here are fully electric. Two-thirds of them have uh, solar arrays on the roof. Um, all the homes were built to the German passive house standard. They actually exceed the standard in many ways, even though they're not certified as passive houses. When a home here is equipped with a appropriately sized solar array, it's designed to be a net zero energy consumer. So the panels generate as much power over the course of the year as the home consumes. And economically, the way that plays out is that your electric bill basically amounts to what it costs to keep you connected to the grid, which is in our area about $13 a month. So one of these homes with a solar array built for the house will cost you about $300 a year in total energy costs. Well, I mean, this is all fantastic. There's a couple things we need to mention. First of all, this is extremely expensive, as uh, you have noted, all of you have noted in your own way, you know, to get in on it. Once you're in, then all of the stuff that you're saying pays off for you. But it's costly, Dave. That is that is true. One of the interesting things about co-housing is there are upfront costs involved. So in a housing market, when you talk to people about home sales, they talk about the value of the house, you know, what's the resale value. That's really not what we're doing. We're not selling houses for a value or anything. We're selling a living situation or a lifestyle or whatever. So when we design the houses and when we put them all together, there's key points that need to be met. And those things are not cheap. So for example, all of Mosaic's units are classified as super insulated, which means that they have six inches of blown in cellulose insulation, plus another three inches of rigid insulation on the outside. And our roofs are about two feet thick. That coupled with triple pane glass windows means we have a very tight building envelope, very well insulated space as Sarah was mentioning, and it's very inexpensive to heat and cool it. The running joke is we can heat an entire house with a candle sitting in the kitchen because heat never leaks out. Mm -hmm. Older houses vent because they're leaky. So they leak around the windows, they leak around. So yeah, so very tight building envelope. But as you mentioned, it's expensive. Those windows are not cheap. The buildings are not cheap. And the cost for maintaining all of this and maintaining the community is higher than what somebody else could find for what is essentially quite a small house. According to U.S. building standards and, and building norms, our houses are quite small, uh, ranging from, I think our smallest is something like 680 square feet up to about 1600 square feet in the US market, that's a small house. But because the communities are designed with shared resources and shared accessibility and shared spaces like our common house, most of us don't need things like an extra spare bedroom or a commercial sized kitchen or an exercise room or a game room. We don't need all that because that's in our common house and we all share that. And that's really what makes this whole model work. Something important about co-housing is 
Yes, it's a community. Yes, it's 120 people per community or however the numbers work out that all work together, live in close proximity to each other and share things together. However, many of us are introverts. It's very, very important for me to have my private, quiet, alone space. That's critical for me and critical for many people. The co-housing community absolutely recognizes that and understands that. So when you're in your home, when your door is closed, you do not need to interact with the community. They won't bother you. You won't bother them. It's a well-understood concept that people need their private space. When I want to be alone, people don't bother me. But if I want to be social, if I want to go out and meet my neighbors, if I want to do things with them, whether that's a common meal, whether that's a picnic, whether that's playing Frisbee in the field, I can, but I'm not forced to. Mm-hmm. And that brings us back to uh, what I said at the beginning, which is during the pandemic, then your communities were very much survivable in ways that uh, other people living not the way you do had a hard time because there was much more isolation and distancing. And so at least you had community if you chose, which was very different from what many people experienced, as we know, during the pandemic. Now, we want to be clear that this is not utopia in that, you know, everybody's not on the same page all the time. And that one of the tough parts of this is really sharing the governance. You do share everything, but governance at each of these places is really a group exercise. So, Sarah, talk about that. Governance-wise, that is definitely something that was an adjustment for me because I had never experienced this form of government. Um, I love it. But the meetings can be very lengthy. People can talk a lot and we don't always get stuck on the things we'll get stuck on. You know, you expect, I don't know, maybe some big budget item to take a long time. But we spent like 35 minutes the other, they're all going to kill me for saying this on the radio. We spent like 35 (laughs) minutes the other month discussing like replacement salt barrels. And it's not that people disagreed. It's just we do some of our own, I don't know, external chores for lack of a better term to save a little money. Um, Or you just can't have your snow removal people come and salt the paths every time you need it. So we have people that that's sort of one of their their chores is they salt. So they have opinions on what kind of salt barrel there should be. And sometimes I am not as invested in everything that gets discussed. But (laughs) if you have something to say, you will always be heard. And everyone is respectful. And sometimes things get really heated and people have to step back. But we have kind of, it's not like Robert's rules of, you know, whatever, it, but there's, there are norms for how you do this kind of governance. We use a colored card system to sort of keep order. And is this a question? Is this a factual thing? Is this, I, I want us to stop right now. This is a big problem. Uh, there's a, a, we won't go into the details. People can absolutely look it up. We're not the only ones who use this, this system, but you are heard and you are respected and your opinion is respected, even if it's not agreed with. But it can be very, very lengthy. And you have to have quorum to pass important things, which means you sometimes have to do a lot of convincing. Okay. Uh, Steve, I was interested in your take on shared governance. Well, I will say that we started out using a consensus model, which works fine when you have a group of eight people around a kitchen table. But as soon as you start bringing in a bunch more folks as the community is organizing, it gets harder and harder to reach consensus. 
And ultimately, we had to let that go. We wound up using a sociocratic governance model, but basically it's a shared decision-making process with areas of authority kind of distributed out amongst various groups of people so that a smaller group has authority to make decisions in a given realm, shall we say. So in our community, we have a common house circle, as we call them. We have a land stewardship circle, uh, that's responsible for the lands around us. We have a facility circle that's responsible for our infrastructure. And we have a social fabric circle that's responsible for setting up meetings, conflict resolution, and care and comfort and supporting people uh, through difficult times. And each of those larger groups is comprised of smaller circles that are responsible for more detailed work, shall we say. I'm a member myself of the Land Stewardship Circle and also the Woodland Management Circle. We take care of the forests around. There is a group that's responsible for mowing. So all the decision-making is kind of broken out and distributed, and the responsibility of the various groups is essentially to keep the community informed so that everybody knows what you're up to. And at the same time, there is a responsibility on the part of the general community members to keep themselves informed. So we have a community bulletin board where all this information is shared and where people can communicate with each other quite easily actually on a whole range of things from letting somebody know what's about to happen in the hedgerow to uh, can somebody walk my dog this afternoon, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of high level of communication shall we say, that continues to happen, but the decision-making process is a little, I'm going to say, a lot easier than it used to be. Well, I think what is really appealing, what people would hear here, is that it, it seems to me there is very little opportunity for someone in the community to do nothing. So you all have to participate in order to share uh, the governance. It's really shared governance in that some somebody, everybody, has a role to play in order to maintain your community. I should mention that co-housing in general, this form of collaborative living, originated in Denmark and has been, of course, adapted for American tastes and, and uh, situations. The other thing I want to bring up is that you all have had successful experiences, but there have been other people, because this has uh, drawn a, a bit of interest, who have tried to start communities like this and they collapsed, they lost money and investment. So you have to be careful, it seems to me, and how you lay the foundation for this, which, Dave, you were very careful to say, took quite a long time, I, I suspect, for these reasons. Yes. Before I go too far down that road, I want to comment on something that Steve just said. A, a lot of folks will ask when they come into co-housing, so do I have to participate? Do I have to contribute? Do I have to work on a team? It needs to be clear that every co-housing community operates differently. So a set of rules that one community uses may not be the same for others. In our case, the participation is 100% voluntary. We have members who do not participate in the community process at all. They just live here. There are few because why would you live in co-housing if you don't want to participate in co-housing? But it's not required. It's not like we, we knock on their door and say and drag them to a meeting. Okay. All right. Okay. Back to your question. Yes. Setting up a Co-housing community from scratch is a multi-year, multi-thousand and more dollar project. Uh, it takes enormous time and energy 
to go from sitting with a friend around, you know, a dinner table and going, boy, wouldn't it be cool if we both had a ho houses on the same property? And then it grows from there. Uh, Mosaic started the process right at the beginning of 2000. We broke ground in 2006 and 2007 with our first folks moving in toward the end of 2007 and 2008. There are challenges through the whole process, not only organizational, as Steve mentioned, it's very hard to get 34 households comprising of 100 people or so to all agree on something. That's not easy. What do you say to those people who have heard the stories about some eco-villages trying to come together, mm -hmm. but they never happened? Are there some questions, some red flags, some something that people should know if they are looking? Because there's a great amount of interest in this. There's a lot of other people talking about doing exactly what you're doing. What is it that you would say to them about make sure this has happened and not this or whatever? <laughs> um, that's a very good question. So if you're starting out a co-housing community, one of the biggest challenges right at the beginning is figuring out a way to function in a way that's productive, respectful, and allows things to move forward. Those early meetings, those early structures when you're starting this out are critical to the success of a community. The, the first questions that come up are, how are we communicating? How are we making decisions? How are we spending money? How do we delegate responsibilities? These things need to be locked in right at the beginning. But the, the general arc is you start making these decisions, these core foundational decisions with a small group, say three to five families. What should we take away from the failure of a place that was going to be called Rocky Corner? This was in New Haven, 33-acre plot in in Bethany, a suburb of New Haven, and all the people there were seemed to be on the same page as all of you, yeah. um, and the thing collapsed because it just, they kept investing and investing, and they lost everything on their investment. So, you know, we have to have that as part of this conversation so sure. people don't say to me, you never asked them about Rocky Corner and why that didn't work. Um, I don't know the particulars of the Rocky Corner scenario, but I suspect they were overextended financially. Uh, I will, I'll talk for a minute about how that worked for us. The group formed an LLC to purchase the land. So that was the kind of the big capital outlay at the outset. We were very, very fortunate. And I think this is true across the board. Any successful group is going to have a number of individuals who have uh, a robust skill set in one of many areas, you know, somebody who knows something about finances, somebody who knows something about group process, all those kinds of things. Uh, we had somebody who was really good money person, and we would have regular meetings where he would sketch out the scenarios. This is what we can do. This is how we get there. We ended up building in phases. We built a cluster of houses with money that we were able to generate through the LLC and also through personal loans from individuals who are part of the project. We couldn't get uh, institutional financing. The, nobody would touch us. We, we didn't have collateral to give beyond the land. Nobody was willing to stick their necks out that far. So it was all in-house financing. Individual members who had some liquidity were able to, to put some money forward and we built a cluster of houses. We built four or five houses at a clip and then used the proceeds from that to build the next set of houses. We were not able to build our common house until every unit 
had been sold. So it was a very kind of a shoestring approach, you know, this piece and then this piece and then this piece. And we were aware at every step of the process that it could crash and burn. You know, you're, you're kind of setting up a bunch of dominoes and hoping that everything will keep its balance. And it did. So I would, I would attribute the success of our group to a large extent to dumb luck. People came along who had skills and energy. Things fell into place for us. Not to say that people didn't work hard. People worked their butts off to make it happen. But there was, there was a lot of just serendipity involved in how the whole process unfolded. Yeah, the luck factor really, Steve's absolutely right. There's factors you can control and factors that you can't control. We went through commercial bank loans to build both Mosaic and Camelot. And if you look at the calendar, you'll notice that we built 68 houses and two common houses in 2007. The worst time possible to do building construction. And we were probably within two weeks of folding. It was very, 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 very close. We almost didn't make it. So when we look at the building, Connecticut, there's definitely an element that could have been us. We were that close. I'll toss in one last little bit. The unit I'm currently in, when the community opened, my unit was actually empty because the family that was supposed to be in my unit actually pulled out. And I know that they lost some amount of, you know, not inconsiderable money. Mm-hmm. Last question. I think we can hear from all of you that you are happy with your decision. And I just would like to know, is this for sure that that's how you feel about it? Would you do it all over again if given the opportunity? Are you happy that you made this decision? I'll start with you, Steve. Yes, I would do it all over again. It's been a challenge and a growing experience, to be sure. But it's been a very, very enriching experience. And it, it's hard to describe the, the feeling of being together with people in the kind of the same boat, if you will. I, I think of eco-villages and co-housing communities as being social lifeboats, if you will, to, to some extent, for the uncertain world to come. You know, it's a, it's a very dynamic environment out there. And I think uh, having a, a community like the one I'm living in right now provides a, a, a layer of comfort and security and protection as I kind of look out at that landscape. It is challenging. In a community like this, you you have three different kinds of relationships. So most people living out in the world, they have their families, they have their friends, they have their co-workers, and they typically are distinct sets of people. But in a situation like this, everybody's all of those things to everybody else. So everybody that you're relating to is your friend. Everybody that you're relating to is your family member, in a manner of speaking. And everybody that you're relating to is a business partner also. And sometimes it gets a little tricky to, to keep all those things distinct. <laughs> <laughs> but all that said, it has been absolutely worthwhile for me. I do it again in a heartbeat. And there's no question in my mind that 
more people live this way, the, the more our society as a whole will benefit. Okay, thank you very much. Sarah? Uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I knew I would like it. I didn't know how much I would absolutely love it. Uh, it's better than I thought it would be. It's so much better that when the opportunity for my neighbor's unit has come up for sale, I'm closing this week, but ultimately my mom will live next door to me. So that tells you how, how much I've, I've bought into this. Okay. Dave? I love my home. And when I say my home, I'm talking about not only the house I'm living in, but the community I live in and the people here and everything having to do with it. Would I do it again? I don't know if I'm ready to dedicate 22 years to doing it again, um, <laughs> but easily the most rewarding thing I've done in my life and the thing I'm the most proud of. I got to build something from scratch with people I respect and admire. I raised my child here. I know everyone here. I know their names. I know their families. I know their foibles. I know what they like. I know what they don't like. I know things about them that in your standard HOA, I wouldn't know this about all my neighbors. I cannot imagine living anywhere else but in co-housing through the pandemic. During that time, all my neighbors were here and we were all supporting each other. We would pool together and say, I'm getting a grocery delivery. I need to go to the pharmacy. I have extra cucumbers from the garden. I have this, I have that. There was still this level of interaction happening with everyone. We weren't isolated. We were still all together. We couldn't go into the common house for a year and a half. Okay. We weren't sharing our houses, but we had our porches. We had our pathways. I would look out my, my kitchen window and see my neighbor walking their dog. And I would poke my head out on the porch and talk with them for a little bit, even though we were still isolated because the pandemic was going on. I still felt connected with my community and my family. Thank you all very much for joining me. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be here. Dave Chevette is a resident and one of the founders of Mosaic Commons, a co-housing neighborhood, part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Sarah Hiley is a resident of Camelot Co-Housing, also part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. And Steve Chasen is a resident of Belfast Co-Housing, an eco-village in Belfast, Maine. Coming up, want to fight food waste but don't know where to start? One app called Too Good To Go can help you do it with just a click of a button. Restaurants sign up and advertise any leftover food that wasn't sold that day. Then customers can come pick it up for a fraction of the original cost. Is this a win-win in the name of reducing food waste? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.